Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You are listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies, and today my guest is former airline captain Tristan Lorraine, and we're going to be talking about his new documentary, American 965. Welcome to the show, Tristan. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I want to know a lot about this film, because there's a lot to it, but before we go there, why don't you tell our, our audience a little bit about what this film is about, American 965. Uh, this film is really about uh, several things. First of all, it's about the the tragic crash of the American 965 plane um, flight, which took place on December 20th, 1995. It was a routine flight from Miami to Cali, and it crashed on approach. But this film is also about big industry, and it's all about the injustice and how it's easy to blame the dead for an accident rather than actually put your hand up and say, we actually have a design problem with this airplane. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, how did you get involved with it? Because you, you were a pilot for how many years do you were a pilot? Yeah, so I was a, a pilot um, in airlines for 20 years. And I started flying when I was still at school when I was 17. And, um, and during my journey as a pilot, you know, you know, I loved the job and, you know, aviation is really important to the world economy. But in that time, I was also a union health and safety representative. And there was a design issue on the model of airplane that you know, well, it, 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 it's actually a problem on many airplanes, but it was a specific issue that was affecting the planes that I was flying, which was the same model plane as in the plane crash. And I was asked to investigate it. And that was in May 2001. And I've been investigating this problem for the last 20 years. Amazing. And this this uh, accident happened in 1995. So quite a few years after the accident. So in your investigating, I mean, so why did you leave? Because um, you apparently loved being a pilot. So what made you decide to leave um, that occupation and then to do what you're doing now, which you can talk a little bit about what you're doing now, too. But uh, why did sure, you decide? Uh, sure. I was a, a captain for British Airways, you know, one of the great airlines in the world. Yes. And at the prime of my career, after repeated exposures to oil fumes, basically chemicals in the cockpits of the airplanes I was flying, it affected me so badly that I had gone from doing the Ironman triathlon to not even able to run a one mile in in six months wow. and consequently the doctors concluded it wouldn't be safe to workplace and so they took away my medical certificate to fly which is something every airline pilot needs or every even private pilot needs to actually get in an airplane and as I didn't have a medical certificate to do the job uh, my employer terminated my contract so uh, you can imagine at the prime of my career having spent years wanting to get there you know I, I wasn't very happy about it and uh, there was a story to tell so I retrained in filmmaking at part with uh, Rain Dance and at part with a National Film and Television School here in England and set about making films and documentaries with my production banner, Fact Not Fiction Films. And for the last 20 years, we've been making films on public interest issues. But, you know, we specialize in this particular issue that ended my career. So was it devastating for you when they told you you couldn't fly any longer? Oh, yeah, it was, you know, I loved, you know, I mean, we make this film about a problem in aviation. But, you know, I love aviation. You know, I've made lots of other films about aviation. And, you know, the world economy needs aviation. And I really miss the job. But uh, on this particular issue, aviation has basically, you know, not, not been honest with the public, as the film will show you. So it's a pretty big leap from being an airline pilot to decide to start your own production company to do documentaries. So what was that 
catalyst and why did you decide to start making these documentaries about these issues that are going on in the airline industry? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I'd grown up, um, I loved film and my family had been in the film business a little bit and my mother had been an actress. My dad was a ghostwriter. And so, you know, it was just a logical choice. And funny enough, mm-hmm. my first job as a young kid and um, when I was at 15, 16 was as an extra, you know, in film movies. So, you know, I loved the whole process about films and also the power that documentaries have. Yes. So when I was ill health retired and I was 44, I basically only had two options was to start legal action, you know, for, for what had happened to me, in which I thought, well, I can never outspend, you know, big industry. Mm-hmm. Or I could make you know films about this and put it into the public domain and educate people. So so that's what I did. And in, in doing so, I realized you can make films about all sorts of things, which really help inform and you know educate people. And you know that's that's what we've been doing it for the last twenty years. And interesting, most of the in background, my, my co business partner actually lives in the Napa Valley. You know, so you know, oh so really, we come from aviation background. Yeah, interesting. So, yes, I agree with you. I I love documentaries. I because and I. That's that's why I love what I do because the show is dedicated to documentarians and independent filmmakers and I, I learn so much myself uh, by watching all of these documentaries so I and this one is is enlightening so how did you so why did you uh, narrow it down to American 965 and and how did that come about because that accident had happened quite a while ago and you know they had already done their investigation the um, uh, and and concluded that it was what pilot error I think error and and, um, and then what made you decide to go dig deeper? Yeah, so the, when the plane crash took place in 1995, you know, within the pilot community, we couldn't quite understand. It just didn't make sense how two pilots for a really reputable airline like American Airlines could fly the airplane into the side of a mountainside. So, you know, but when the investigators come out, when you're in the aviation industry, you have to understand you trust the system. As an airline pilot, you know, you trust that the refueler puts the right fuel on, you trust the right. engineer, you trust the air traffic control, you trust that security have checked all the passengers, the bags. You have to trust the right. system. So when the American National Transportation Safety Board, you know, came out with their report, we just said, well, that's the way it is. But then what started to happen is as I became a health and safety rep in 1998, a few years after the accident, I started to become aware of a number of cases where pilots on the same model of airplane as in the American 965 crash, which was a Boeing 757, were making mistakes. You know, they were becoming cognitively impaired in flight. And it made me start to wonder, hang on a minute, if this could have happened to the to other crews, you know, what about the American 965 flight? And to give you an example, first of all, for your viewers, to clarify what's going on here. You know, everybody who's listening to your program has probably been on an airplane. And when they're on an airplane and they're sitting there at 35,000 feet, looking out the window, you know, having something to eat or reading a magazine or watching the world go by, they should ask themselves, where does the air I breathe come from? Because outside it's twice as cold as your home freezer and there's not enough air pressure to keep you alive. So how do they keep you alive in this kind of tube flying across the sky? How they do that is they provide you air to breathe taken directly from the compression section of the engines and the it's known as bleed air because they bleed it from the core of the engines it's very hot and this air gets you know pumped into the cabin apart from being cooled it's totally unfiltered and this air gets contaminated with the oils lubricating the engines or hydraulic fluids and when you um, contaminate the air what you're breathing in is now a very complex mix 
mixture of hundreds of different chemicals which are known to impair cognitive performance and crew performance. And we've had crews all the way from being slightly impaired to totally incapacitated, you know, we're, we're aware of around the world. And so in British Airways, we had a flight going into London Heathrow Airport, which is the busiest international airport in the world. Right. And the crews, although they were talking to air traffic control and although they were telling the airplane autopilot which heading to go or and what heights to fly at, they, they got to a point where they actually forgot to slow the plane for landing. And air traffic control could not understand why this plane front hadn't even landed. So they asked them to abort the approach. They told them to, to go around. And as they went around, you know, the, it kind of didn't quite go to plan. And the commander, the captain said, hang on a minute, how did we end up in this position? So he went on to emergency oxygen. And when you're on emergency oxygen, you're now you know, able to get your cognitive faculties back to 100%. And the confidential internal report stated the flight crew were unaware they were becoming partially incapacitated. Wow. Now, there's been so many of these events that the when these events occur, they're normally investigated by an air accident department in America, it's the NTSB. Mm-hmm. And in the United Kingdom, it's called the AID. And the AID have investigated so many of, of these events and realized that this contaminated air is such a risk to flight safety. They've twice recommended that every aircraft should have a contaminated air warning system to warn the pilots when the air is contaminated. And yet the last time they did this was nearly 14 years ago. And neither the FAA or the European equivalent have done anything about it. They're allowing aircraft to continue to fly with no warning systems fitted to warn when the air is contaminated. And the traveling public, you know, deserve better. Because when you think about it, when you book on an airplane flight, they ask you, where do you want to sit? Uh, You pay extra money to sit in coach or economy or, or in business. You pay for a meal, you pay for coffee, you pay for baggage, you pay for everything. But they don't say to you, well, would you pay another quarter to actually breathe clean air and let the and have warning systems on the airplane? So that's why we make the films, so that the traveling public can be made aware of what's going on. And 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 if I may, people often ask me, Well, hang on, how would I know if the air was contaminated? Right. And in essence, when the when these oils contaminate the air supply, uh, many of the chemicals are odorless or hazardous like, mm-hmm. or um, colorless like carbon monoxide. But some of them um, have a distinct smell. And one of them has like a dirty sock kind of smell, a carboxylic acid type of smell. And the crews often report these dirty sock smells. So you would think, well, hang on, if they smell something, well, why don't they do something about it? And here's the real gotcha from a flight safety point of view. And that is that when you start to have these exposure events, if you take out a stopwatch and start it, within two minutes, your ability to actually smell that there's something in the air is virtually gone. So like any of your older listeners might remember walking into a bar where people used to smoke and you'd walk in, you go, oh, wow, you could smell all the smoke. But within no time at all, you don't notice it. Or if you walked into a bakery today, and this is why it's such a serious flight safety issue, because, you know, you know, there's no warnings of what's going on. And most crews are very reluctant to do anything about it or speak up about it. So that's why we make the films. And that's why we try to educate the traveling public as to what is fundamentally a design problem that they should know about. Because if any of the traveling public watching a program was to pick up a can of the oils or hydraulic fluids that that people get exposed to on a regular basis, the can state suspected of causing cancer 
do not mm. breathe mist or vapor from heated mm. product. Wow. And do you think... Et cetera, et cetera. These are chemicals. No, no, I was saying these are chemicals people do not want to be breathing in. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's a breach of human rights on a huge scale. It, it truly is. Do you, and I want to go back to that a little bit, but I was thinking when you were talking that because the pilots are in a, uh, a smaller area in the plane, you know, they're in the cockpit and, the, and, and now the doors are, you know, latched so nobody can get into them. Um, do you think that's even creates a, a, a bigger hazard for the pilots? Because everybody else has got, even though we're all still breathing that, there's a bigger cabin space, so it may not be as concentrated. Do you think that has some effect on it? I don't know. You probably get the air supply to the cockpit is slightly more than in the cabin because they like to have slightly, very fractionally more air pressure in the cockpit than in the cabin. In case, mm-hmm. if there was a cabin fire, they don't want smoke going into the cockpit. So basically, it's very slightly more air there to make sure that the smoke comes can't get into the cockpit. And on every different aircraft model, where the cockpit air comes from varies. And what's very unique to the Boeing 757 that crashed in Kali is that the air supply comes specifically from the left engine. And in our research, we found, and it's all in the NTSB data, the left engine had an oil leak. They knew it had an oil leak. And so it's a no-brainer to think, well, if the left engine has an oil leak, some of that oil is going to be going into the cabin, passenger in the cockpit, and they're going to be breathing it in, and it's going to cognitively impair them. And yet, as you know from watching the film, the NTSB never even considered that. You know, it's just incredible that with all the information the industry knew, I mean, let's not be shy of saying it. The aerospace industry knew about this problem in the 1950s. And when the problem first came about, you know, they could have either fixed the problem or thought, well, we'll sort it out later. But let's not forget, people used to smoke on airplanes. So when people, when in the early days of jet transport, they thought, well, well, if a bit of oil gets under the air supply, who's going to know anyway? Because people smoke. And nobody Mm. ever anticipated the smoking ban that would come in the late 80s, early 90s when they introduced this system. Because since then, the number of these events has skyrocketed. I mean, it was in the early 90s, American flight attendants were already complaining to Senate and Congress about this problem. So, you know, the crew members around the world have been complaining about this for decades and decades. And it's only now that passengers are starting to wake up to this issue. Well, this film is going to be an eye-opener for anybody who flies, and I highly recommend everybody who flies, and we all do fly, to definitely watch this. I'm also curious because now we have this mask mandate, and I think they're going to continue that on airlines. I'm not sure. We'll see what happens. Do you think that might help? I mean, it's maybe not for the pilots, but in the crew. I don't know if the crew are wearing, I haven't flown since the pandemic, but um, that that might help a little bit because it's filled for, for the past at least because it is they're at least having their um, air filtered a little bit through the mask do you think that is something that will help or not yeah, you faded out a little bit, but I oh. think I've got the question. So so it's important to remember that the, all the air comes from the engines, but to reduce how much air they use per second from the engines to save money, they recirculate half of the air in, mm. the, in the cabin. And the recirculated air goes through um, HEPA filters, which are there to remove bacteria and viruses, you know, and they're pretty effective at doing that. So that's great and, you know, good on the aviation industry for having them there. But the bottom line is, if you're sitting in a row of seats 
and the guys beside you or ladies beside you have got COVID-19, well, you know, you're going to get it regardless of how often the air is changed or whatever, by virtue of the fact that you're so in close proximity to the people mm. beside you. You know, so, you know, that's why obviously the mask thing, you know, obviously masks is obviously going to help a lot. But when the pandemic started last year, we did a, a survey of, of flight attendants and about 20% of them had had COVID-19 symptoms from going to work, which is a huge amount. Yeah, a huge. So, uh, you know, obviously people are getting more vaccinated and whether the vaccines are going to prove to be effective or not, I don't know. I mean, obviously in America, aviation seems to be getting going a lot more than the rest of the world. So if there's going to be a problem, you'll see it first. Well, and... Uh yeah, well, we, it, it was only a matter of time. I mean, you know, the more of us who get vaccinated, uh, obviously, the better it is for everyone to get that herd immunity. And now they're talking that we will need to maybe have a booster as the variants continue to mutate and grow and all of that. So it makes that fascinating, too. But um, it's right. So you talk about this problem. You're saying that, you know, the NTSB in in the States and and then England, they're very aware of this problem. They've been aware of this problem. What would be the cost to them to try to fix this problem? So, both, you know, over the last 20 years I've been doing this, air accident departments around the world have investigated numerous contaminated air vents on aircraft. And they've actually made over 50 recommendations and findings in 12 different countries on this issue. But the NTSB has never done anything. So, you know, whilst they're doing something in Sweden, England, Australia, Germany, France, and the NTSB have never made any recommendations on this issue at all, which really starts to question, well, you know, why not? What right. are they frightened of? Right. Um, the FAA have done some work on this issue, but to give you an idea of how the American Senate Congress told the FAA 10 years ago or so, you need to do air monitoring of the air when people are complaining about the dirty socks. Because mm -hmm. the FAA said, oh, we've measured the air on the airplanes and it's better than in your home or kitchen. And we said, well, hang on, but you're not measuring it when the air is contaminated. Right. So Congress said, no, no, you need to do that. So the FAA spent millions of dollars designing a portable air sampler that they could take on an airplane, flight attendants could, and if they noticed the dirty sock smell, they would activate the machine, which would capture there, and then they could analyze it. Great plan. But guess what? No U.S. airline would allow their employees, their flight attendants, to carry these portable detection systems on the airplane, even though it was FAA approved. So the union said to the FAA, hang on a minute, you're spending all this money on this study. You need to tell the airlines to, to allow our crew members to take them. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we're not going to. So that just shows you how the FAA, as much as the traveling public will think, oh, they're there for the welfare of the traveling public. They're not. They're primarily there to look after the commercial interests uh, of the aviation industry. So these samplers, which were never really used in, in earnest in America, were then sent to Australian pilots. And they said, well, we are use them in Australia. And they were easily able to correlate contaminated air vents and finding these chemicals that we're worried about. And, you know, we've been swabbing the walls inside airplanes, and they're pretty much all positive for the organophosphates. These are like really neurotoxic mm. chemicals present in oils and hydraulic fluids. So, you know, we know it's on the surfaces of the walls, we know people are being exposed on a regular basis. What we don't know for sure is 
how much is this affecting like the unborn child that's being exposed you know there could be thousands of mothers out there who have kids that were affected in some way during the first eight weeks of their pregnancy and they would never make the link there might not be anybody you know we don't know when we we need to know what's going on because ultimately this is such an easy problem to fix you just need to fit effective filters which would cost about thirty thousand dollars per airplane you know for an airplane that's worth hundred million dollars or whatever you know we're talking nickel and dime money and so you know they should do something rather than try to bury the problem because they're terrified of the the litigation and the liability i mean all many of the cases that are being brought against big aerospace companies never get to court because they settle out of court. Mm -hmm. Why not? If they've got nothing to hide, run the case, let a jury decide, let the world know what they know, and let's be done with it. Or let's just fix the problem. You know, I'm not a... I'm not in the camp that says, oh, we should... We need aviation. I love aviation. But let's just please be man enough and let's fix the problem and do the right thing by the traveling public. Well, when you were talking about those, basically like a portable filter for the planes, and then the FAA didn't require them to to put them on the planes. No, 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 those portable things were, they would be, they were like an air sampling device. So literally it'd be like the size of my fist as a little machine. And if they smelt the air was contaminated, they would rotate it, which would activate it, and it would capture the air, and then they could analyze it in the lab. But no airline would allow that to be activated on their airplanes Why? because because they, they're terrified of the liability issues. Because <sighs> then the flight attendant will say, "Oh, I ran this machine on your airplane, and and now I'm sick, and there's the proof I was it." So they they just wouldn't do it, and the FAA wouldn't tell them to do it. You know, that's the problem. It's always about money. Everything's about money. You know, we think that our government agencies and our government are working for us, but you know, they're not. Always. It's always in the best interest of big money. And it's unfortunate that um, everyone else has to suffer because and also, of that. You know, at the end of the day, you know, life's a free choice. You know, people choose to eat terrible diets or not mm-hmm. exercise or drink too much or smoke or what recreational jobs are. It's a free choice. Right. But what the aviation industry should do is they should be honest with the public and say, these are the chemicals you're going to be exposed to. Because when these contaminated air events occur, they don't ring you up and say, oh, hi, just to let you know, last week you were exposed to these you know, chemicals. We, we just want to see how you are. We'll ring you up in a you know, month's time, a year's time, 10 years' time. They, they don't do that. You know, flight attendant, the cancer rates in flight attendants is, according to Harvard, 3.7 times more than the national average. I was going to another, and, and according to another study in, in the United Kingdom, 10 times higher. Oh, you wow. Know, if, wow. If, the, if the cans say the product is suspected of causing cancer and the cancer rates are higher, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make the link that, you know, it's got to be something in what people are breathing. Exactly. Oh, oh Tristan, I was going to ask you that. We uh, we uh, have, I only have a few minutes, a few seconds. Can you just tell people where they can see American 965? Yes. Yeah, so the American 965 will be in selected U.S. cinemas from uh, 9 July. And we're obviously looking to place it on some of the bigger networks, um, you know, you know, obviously the dream would be Netflix or Nat Geo or Discovery Plus or something like that. And for more information, they can go to the website American965.com. 
Well, and if anybody wants to learn any more about this issue, there is a crew alliance out there of labor organizations dealing with this at gcaqe.org, where they can learn all about this information. There's educational films and everything there that the traveling public would need to know before the next flight. Wonderful. Thank you, Tristan. I really appreciate it. And everybody, if you've, if you've ever flown on an airplane, you must see this documentary. It will wake up your eyes. And maybe if we can get enough people out there to uh, put pressure on, on the airline industry, maybe we can get some things changed. So, thank, Tristan, thank you so much. Uh, for this wonderful documentary, and thank you for being on the show. It's been my pleasure to have you here. No, thank you very much, and take care of yourself in sunny California. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Stay, stay nice and uh, warm in, uh, in in England, too. If you have missed any of the Jam Price shows all about movies, you all the shows are archived on thejampriceshow.com, and you can also find us on the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple Podcast Network, Google Play, iTunes, everywhere. We're on YouTube. You can find us, and you can follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at The Jam Price Show. Thank you all for listening. Jam Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jam Price Show, all about movies.